Hey there and welcome to the Duncan Pentecostal Church podcast streaming from Vancouver Island here in Canada. And however you have found our podcast, we're so glad you're here. Before we jump into today's message, just a couple things I want to let you know. If you go to our website, www.duncanchurch.com, you're going to find a couple easy ways where you can connect with us. We have an online connect card you can fill out. Maybe let us know where you're listening from and check off the option to receive our what's happening email. We send this out once a week. It's a great way to stay connected with everything that's going on here at the church and even online. Apart from that, there is a give button. So if you're feeling led, you can do that right online through our website. You can also find us on Facebook and YouTube. We are so glad you're tuning in and we are believing that God's going to do something special in you through today's message. Enjoy. For those of you who are watching online or in the future, if if you're here and you're visiting this morning uh, and you don't know who I am, my name is Ross Breitkreit, so special hello. I actually told a friend, he said he's going to tune in, and I said, hey, I'll wave to you on the live stream, and he said, I'll hold you to it, so hi. There. I had to make sure I did that. Uh, So welcome to DPC. So glad you're here with us this morning as we're going to continue our sermon series in the book of Hebrews, if the slide didn't give it away. Um, I just got to tell you guys off the top here, if you've ever wondered what it's like being a pastor, it's, it's weird. Being a pastor can be kind of weird, and here's why I say that, because It has led me at times to study and read about things that I really couldn't have cared less about. And I don't know why, but for some reason, I like will read about things when I'm prepping for a sermon that I really have no experience in my life regarding and no real interest in. And so that happened this past week. So I want to ask you guys, I'm going to read something. Uh, and I, I want to see if any of you guys even understand or know what this even applies to, okay? And then I'll share what I was, was studying a little bit. Okay. Left, six, 40, right, four, opens, tightens, two, no cut, kinks into left, five into right, four short, 50, right, three, 150. Well done. It is a rally race. That was not football. Very well done. What you guys just heard is what, if you were a driver in a rally car, this is what you would be hearing from the voice of arguably the most important person on a rally team. And that is the navigator or the co-driver as they are referred to. And that blob of gibberish that most of you just heard, okay, what that actually is, is it is communicating in a very specific type of code that varies per team, right? So you kind of would come up with your own, with you and the driver if you were the navigator. It is communicating directions, the gradient and degree of the next turn. Uh, It's communicating obstacles that may be upcoming, like bumps, dips, if the road narrows, if the road gets super windy, and it's going to communicate the approximate speed at which these insane people can somewhat reasonably navigate roads that were never designed to be driven fast on. That is what 
that jumble of mess is describing. Not only that, but a driver and the co-driver need to actually have such an intimate and close personal relationship that the co-driver needs to know not just like what the course is, but the actual driver's character to be able to communicate to them when to push and when to slow down. It is an insanely important relationship. Also, co-drivers, I have discovered, are responsible for mechanical repairs that might pop up while you're on the track. And in some cases, if there is an unforeseen object that has entered the road, they will get out there and physically move it. Now, I cannot remember why I started studying this this week. I really can't, but I cannot help, as I did, see such a direct, clear correlation and picture between a driver and the co-driver and us in our lives and our relationships with the Lord. Now, I got to be honest, when I started studying, I was like, okay, and then God's going to be in the driver's seat, right? Because Carrie Underwood taught me, Jesus, take the wheel. (laughs) But that is not the case if we are honest, because the truth is, the reality is, we are the driver because we are given the opportunity to decide, are we going to turn left? Are we going to turn right? That is the truth. And this really, really got hit home for me uh, when I read one article in particular, and it was actually written by a driver. A rally driver wrote this, and I want you guys to just listen to some of this and, and apply it to thinking about the relationship that we have with Jesus, and this is what he says, speaking about the depth of trust and relationship required between driver and navigator. He says, how well do you listen to directions and how much faith do you place in the person who's giving you these directions? These are two questions that I'm seriously mulling over since I've been signed up for rallying. The relationship between a driver and co-driver is one of the most delicate and important in all of motorsports, and it can take years, listen to this wording, to form a deep and abiding trust. I didn't know if I would find those words outside of scripture, but here in rally racing, He says, in the heart of a race, instructions from a co-driver come quick and relentless in a steady machine gun pattern and trying to hear one another and discern what's being said over the noise and chaos of the car is difficult. I am going to need a total faith type listening that translates into instant action. Still, that doesn't mean I'm always going to listen, even though I know better. That ugly sense of I know best rears its ugly head, and on occasion, I boldly go in the wrong direction. So, my navigator told me recently, quite seriously and gravely, you have to remember not to do anything until I tell you. Don't take off. Don't move. You're driving, but I'm in control. You are driving, but who is in control? You are driving, but who is in control? Who is influencing the decisions that you are making in your life? Who or what are you listening to that is helping you direct your path as we navigate this journey, this race called life? Or do you simply think and believe that you're cruising down the road, taking in all the stimuli flying at you, and you're processing it in real time, and you don't have a co-driver? 
You're driving, but who is in control? This morning, we're going to be looking at some people who were making a journey of their own through the desert. Mind you, not in rally cars. They were on foot. But they were being given instructions and directions for the journey that they were going on. But we're going to discover that they did not always listen. And what we learned from rally car driving, which applies to our faith life, is this, is that the best way to move forward is in faith. Moving forward in faith is what we need to do. But if you do not have faith, you can sometimes move backwards in unbelief. This is what I want to talk about this morning, is moving forward in faith. So grab a Bible, open up your phones, but only if you have the Bible app, okay? I'm just joking, you still can. Um, uh, And turn with me to Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7, is where we're going to be picking up this morning. Now, I just want to say, as you guys are getting there, getting to this passage, uh, I want to jump in and just talk about the very first word that we come to in verse 7 here in Hebrews chapter 3. Now, in my translation, I, I always have an NIV. That's just what I grew up with. That's, that's my Bible, right? Does anyone have, like, the, that's my Bible? Just have a version of the my Bible that you just can't lose, right? I actually, when I uh, used to fly more often than I do now. Um, I honestly, because I had heard stories about like pastors or Christians being on a plane and God laying it on their heart to give their neighbor their Bible on the flight. I literally would fly and pray that God wouldn't call me to do that. Because like it's, I just love my Bible. I have so many like highlights and markups. I just feel like I can't read any other Bible. Anyways, my Bible is an NIV. And in verse three, the fir- or verse seven, the first word for me is so. Now, I looked at some other translations. Yours might say, therefore, wherefore, or possibly it might say, that is why. What I want to just point out simply is this. These are connecting words, all right? These are connecting words, which means they are connecting a flow of thought, of reason and logic throughout this passage so far, which means in order for us to understand what verse 7, 8, 9, 10, 11 are getting to, we need to understand what has previously been said. So we're just going to recap Hebrews just like super, super quickly. Also, it's been a couple weeks since we were in the book, all right? So Hebrews, uh, to put it simply, if you don't know what the thesis statement yet that's being defended throughout this letter is, it is this. It is Jesus is better. Jesus is greater. Jesus has created a better way. This is what the whole book of Hebrews is talking about. And we've already seen in chapters 1, 2, and 3 this being laid out, right? Uh, The writer of Hebrews explains to us that Jesus is better than the angels, Right? He's better than the prophets. He's a better prophet. And he is better than Moses. This is what chapter 3 opens up saying. And Peter preached on this the last time we were studying Hebrews. And it talked about how uh, Jesus is better builder and better over the he- as a head over the house of God. Okay? Now, in the context for Moses, in the Old Testament context, the house of God would have been referring to the tabernacle, and in the Old Testament, then ultimately the temple. But Hebrews 3, what I love, points out and makes it very clear that that is not the case anymore. 
Because of what Jesus did, what God declared in the Old Testament when he said that he desires to pour out his spirit on all people, to leave that tent, to leave that temple and enter into our lives, that has now happened. And we are now the house of God. So, Our author is explaining this, laying this all out, that Jesus is better. And this is where we are uh, at the coming to the end of verse 6, moving into 7. Now, as the author would have been writing this and talking about the house of God and how it was being established, I would imagine, because this book is called Hebrews, which means the original audience was for primarily Hebrew people, which means they would have known the Old Testament really, really well. So when he's writing about the house of God being built and established, they were likely thinking about Moses and the time when they were first given the house of God and the instructions for it, and that was during the time of the Exodus. So, with all of this in mind and on their mind, we're going to read our passage this morning, but I just want to begin in verse 6, and we are going to make our way through all of the rest of chapter 3, taking little stops along the way. So, starting verse 6, Hebrews 3. And we are his house, if we hold firmly to the confidence and hope in which we glory. So as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. During the time of testing in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested and tried me, though for 40 years they saw what I did. This is why I was angry with that generation. I said their hearts are always going astray and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. We are going to pause there and we'll continue through the passage in a little bit. But to begin, what I want us to understand is this, is that these words are some of the most sincere, heartfelt, like get down on your knees, get eye level with the person you're talking to, uh, admonishment that we have so far in Hebrews. This is a real, like gut check, heart-wrenching kind of a moment that the author is talking about. It really is. In fact, the words, today if you will hear his voice, okay? Because we're going to just see that this is quoting from Psalm 95. So this has been translated into Greek from Hebrew. And that sentence is actually a common turn of phrase in the original Hebrew, And it sounds a little bit different than we have it translated. It actually was a common way of expressing a wish. It was more a term of longing and desire than it was coming off as a demand. In fact, it could actually be read more and would have likely been read and heard by these readers to sound more like this. Oh, but if you would only hear his voice and listen. It was longing and desire at the heart of this message. So what is it that this author of Hebrews is wanting, longing, and desiring for the people to listen to? Well, in order to understand this fully, we're going to just need to blaze through the story of the Exodus this morning. Because as I mentioned, this is quoting Psalm 95, 
which is referring to what took place during the time of the exodus of the people of Israel from Egypt. So just to make sure it's all fresh in our memories, we're going to touch on the exodus and God's phenomenal provision of his people. So the Israelite people had been in bondage in Egypt for 430 years. 430 years. Generations would have been born, lived, and died knowing nothing but slavery. I can only imagine that 430 years must have sucked the faith and the hope and in a lot of ways the life out of this family of people. And then God delivers them. He raises up a man named Moses through whom he does miracle after miracle. Okay? primarily beginning with the well-known 10 plagues that would come on Egypt. And they were 10 plagues that could not be ignored. Like there wasn't a facet of life that was not impacted by these plagues. Okay, ground, water, the sky, uh, humans, plants, animals, insects. You could not ignore what God was doing in the land of Egypt. And in fact, it became so difficult to deny that Pharaoh, who believed the God of Israel could not stand a chance to his power, finally submits and allows these people to leave into freedom, which is phenomenal, but it gets better because the Egyptians now were viewed them with such favor that they even go and they pillage them, they plunder them, and they walk off just like filthy rich. Okay, loaded, walking off into freedom. Now, if this all isn't great enough, God continues to provide for these people. He sends a pillar of cloud that is going to lead them on their journey, okay? So you're being led by a pillar of cloud during the day, which then transforms to a pillar of fire at night. That's going to light and guide their way and also maybe keep them warm because the desert does get cold at night. So they're on their way, they're on their journey, but not too far down the road, Pharaoh relapses and he comes chasing after the people. And they find themselves trapped in the desert, pinned up against water, at which point God takes this pillar, rolls it from in front of them to behind them, separates the people from Pharaoh and his army, keeps them safe. Meanwhile, Moses has his hands raised, the water parts, a path is made where there was no way, and these people walk off into freedom, get to the other side, turn around just in time to see the waters close in, swallowing Pharaoh and his army. And for the first time, I imagine, in that moment, in that scene, these people fully actually believe like, wow, we really are free. Have you ever had one of those moments? I mean, for me, it's almost always like, when you're going on vacation, right? It's like, you're so excited to go, you're so excited to go, and you're like, you're actually leaving on the vacation, but for me, it's not until like the plane takes off that I'm like, oh, wow, I really am on vacation, right? So that, I kind of picture that. They're like, oh, we're free, we're free, we're free, we're free. Oh, shoot, oh, shoot. And then they see Pharaoh wiped out, and they're like, free, like, oh, this is freedom, This is the moment, and these people celebrate, and they're singing that the Lord, that he has triumphed, that the horse and rider fell into the sea. Actually, this is so random. Did anyone grow up singing a song? The horse and rider fell into the sea. Oh, my. That's for you, Dad. Yes. 
I like, oh yeah, okay. I will, I, that's a whole rabbit trail. I just had to know. Oh, yes. <laughs> okay, we're going to switch. We're going to close with that song now, okay? Um, so, these people wrote that song, all right, absolute jam that was really popular in the 90s. Uh, and what an incredible beginning, right? Amen. What an incredible exodus. What an incredible beginning to this story. Now, the, the awesome thing is that it really should be in not a, and this wasn't the best part, right? The best part was where God was leading them. He was leading them into a land of rest, leading them into a promised land. So they experienced this phenomenal exodus, but God wanted to lead them somewhere else. And it really didn't have to take long until they arrived there. But first, he takes them down to Sinai because as Peter taught, when we went through exodus, God didn't just call them out. He called them to, to himself right? He wasn't just drawing them out. He was drawing them near. So they go to Mount Sinai where they encounter God in other powerful, miraculous ways. And he descends on mountains. And I believe Psalms describes that the mountains melt like wax. I love that picture. He, yes, it is. Michael W. Smith song. That's how I remember it. Anyways, so he encounters them in these powerful ways here at this mountain, and he speaks to them. He provides them food, water. They even find meat there. He gives them laws, rules, customs, and he sets them apart as a distinct nation. What a phenomenal story. However, as amazing as all of this is, as phenomenal of an experience as all this was, the exodus that begins so well ends so poorly. It ends so poorly, in fact, that out of the 600,000 men that are mentioned, that are numbered, who leave during the exodus, only two of them over the age of 20 will ever actually enter the promised land God intended for them. How does this happen? How does something so miraculous, so amazing take place? How do you encounter such redemption and freedom just to fall short of the fullness of what God is calling you to and all that he has in store? This is the reminder and the warning that is exactly what the author of Hebrews is drawing out in this passage of Scripture. Now, this isn't in the message exactly, but I need to say this. I want to make it very clear as a caveat as we move forward. Verse 7 says, uh, it, once again in my translation, today if you hear his voice, right? It says today if you hear his voice. I want to just remove that almost like a question mark that seems to be there in that sentence. In fact, I actually really, really like the way the NLT chooses to translate this line because the NLT says, today, when you hear his voice and make no bones about it this morning, you are hearing from the Lord. You are hearing from the Holy Spirit and not because Ross Breitkreitz is speaking to you. That is not why. It is because I'm reading scripture that has been God-breathed, that has been guided, led, and inspired by the Holy Spirit. And any time you open up the Word of God, you are hearing from the Lord. So there is a message for each and every single one of us here today. 
which is another thing that I want to point out, that our invitation to listen, our invitation to respond, our invitation to hear a word from the Lord is an invitation for today. For today. It's like this verse is explained to us like, okay, God, when would be a good, appropriate time for me to approach you? Today. Lord, when, when is the time in my life when I have all my ducks in a row and I can approach you now? When is that? It's today. Lord, when do you want to meet with me and do something in my life? It is today. This is the invitation we are now getting from the Holy Spirit. This is not like running into that friend from high school that you haven't seen for years in the grocery store, right? I don't know. Maybe you're all better than me, but when they, this is how the conversation usually ends. Hey, we should grab coffee sometime. I might as well say, hey, we should never get together. <laughs> like, let's be honest. Let's be honest for a second. Because it's not like, hey, let's go get coffee today. Right now, you and me, let's continue this painful, hurtful conversation. I would like to prolong this over coffee. Not a chance. You go, hey, let's grab coffee sometime. And then just hope that they're not like, how's next Wednesday? Because then you have to be like, oh, I got to check with the wife. Sorry. <laughs> this is not the invitation from the Holy Spirit. The invitation is for today. Make no bones about it. He wants to meet with us. So just to make sure we're all clear, here in the church, and if you're watching online, type it in the chat. Does anyone know, when does God want to meet with you? Amen. Amen. All right. So God wants to meet with us today. So it says, do not harden your heart as you did in your rebellion. Did you catch that? Because this is what this is saying and making clear. The events in our lives will not harden our hearts. How we respond to them will. We have a responsibility when things, trials come to our lives. They do not harden our hearts. How we respond and view our trials and how we uh, respond and view God amidst our trials is ultimately going to lead to how our hearts respond and if they're going to get soft or if they're going to get hard. And in them, we can either move forward in faith or backwards in unbelief. And here's how we know this from Scripture. So, uh, my Bible words it this way. It puts it as this, tempt and try God, right? In that verse, it says that they would tempt and try God. I looked up some other translations. The wording is also that they tempted and proved me. They tested and tried me, and they put me to the test, okay? Now, what I want us to understand, though, is that the reason we get tempted me and proved me, like the reason in most translations there's two words, is because there was two Greek words used when this passage was originally written. Now, in English, it actually should be, uh, I believe the, the direct translation is tempted and tempted, 
right? But since for us, tempted means the same thing, it would be just useless to repeat the word. But in Greek, which if you know this, and I'm sure Peter's talked about this before, uh, it has so many different words to kind of communicate the same thing, right? Like there's a number of different ways for the word love, right? To describe the different types of love. So this is describing two different types and approaches to temptation that we are now trying to reword by saying tempted and provoked. All right? Listen to this. This is what the original two words, if they were put together, are communicating. This is what the people in the desert during their trials were doing to God. It says, they put God to the test to see what evil or good there was in God. That was the first one. And then the second one, I believe, is more common to the type of test we would be aware of. And they put God to the test for the purpose of approving God if he meets the test. Let me read that one more time. They put God to the test to see what evil or good there was in God. And they put God to the test for the purpose of approving God if he meets the test. Has, have any of you been there before? Don't answer that. I will, and I have. Not proudly, but I have sat in trials and done exactly what is being described here. That instead of trusting in God and trusting, and trusting what the Bible tells me, who he is, how he is, what he's calling me to do in my trials, I have at times acted exactly how this passage described, where I have approached the trial that I'm in as if it's going to be an opportunity for God to prove his steel. Right? I have approached my trials as if it's like, yeah, I know, I've heard that you probably could, but will you? I am trying to figure out what good or evil, you know, God is in God during this trial. Instead of humbly accepting that no matter what happens, his way is ultimately higher than my way and that all things work for the good of those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. Instead of resting in that, I have viewed it as if in some crazy way, God is probably just as unsettled by this predicament because he's on the hot seat. This is how they were viewing God, and this is what I have done. It's as if in this moment I'm saying, okay, God, um, you're going to do the steering. I'm going to tell you what the directions are, though. We're going to see how well you listen. This is what I have done, and I've responded with, you know what's happening here? It's simple. I have lacking belief. I have unbelief in who he is and how good he is. Because during all of this, what is happening is it's as if I don't trust his resume, which the Bible, right? It's like, I don't believe your resume is good enough. I don't think you're qualified for this job, so I would like to give you kind of a bit of a trial period right now going to test you and see how this goes out. But meanwhile, what you're missing out on and what the Israelite people were missing out on was this, the real invitation from God during their trial. The real invitation from God during our trial is for rest, is to trust him. 
is to believe in his goodness, is to give our faith an opportunity to grow. And so we rest in the moment so that by putting our faith in him, we will find fullness in the future. This is what God was calling the Israelite people to do, to continue to trust him during all of their time in the wilderness because he was ultimately leading them to a fullness that they would end up ultimately missing out on because of their lack of faith in him. They were being called to continue to place their faith in God who had brought them so triumphantly out into freedom, but they didn't. And they responded by testing him, by provoking him, and their hearts as a result grew bitter and hard towards him. You know, it's kind of like, I don't know if you've ever done this, had someone in your life or maybe even just picture a TV show, whatever, but we've seen it before where you view a person with the expectation that they're going to mess up, right? You're like, oh, that person, he always messes up. And then even if they do it like 99% right, what do you see? Is the 1%. And what happens? Do you feel tender-hearted towards that person? No. Your heart is growing, you're growing a hard heart towards that person. This is what the Israelite people were doing to God. Their hearts grew hard and bitter. So in our trials, we have a choice, and it's this. Are we, going to be, are we putting trust in God, or are we putting God on trial? Are we going to put our trust in God, or are we going to put God on trial? Now, luckily, there is a simple way for us to find out which camp we are landing in. So we're going to continue in our passage this morning, just reading verse 12 for now. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. Simple observation here, you need to check your heart. You need to be willing to look in your heart, hold it under a microscope, hold it up to God's word, and be honest with yourself, do I trust God or am I wanting to test God? And I'm not going to preach at length on this because I truly believe that if you just sat down in silence by yourself and took even 30 seconds, you will be able to tell which camp you land in very quickly. We need to check our hearts. And then what? Verse 13. But encourage one another daily as long as it is called today so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We need to check our hearts and we need to encourage one another daily. Let me tell you this, a heart that is sincerely set on trusting the Lord, if you come along someone who is in a trial, what do you think is going to come out of that person? Faith. I had a teacher at school, he always, he would always, there was two things that he'd always say, and he was always talking about the heart, and he said, what's down in the well comes up in the bucket, so you want to fill your heart with faith in the Lord, and the other one was, he uh, used, he loved water analogies, the other one was that you, you, want, you wanted to be a glass that was so full that when it was bumped, you spilled out your faith, Right? 
That's what he wanted. This is what it was saying. If you check your heart, if you're a person who tenderly, genuinely has just that faith for God, when you come along someone who has a need and bumps into you, what is going to come out is faith to encourage one another daily, to fill one another up with faith, and to sometimes, and I'll be honest, I've been there, have someone speak faith over you because you might feel like your faith is weak at the time. Now, I'm going to share it towards the end and make it very clear. Make no mistakes. There's room for little faith. That's different than unbelief. Okay? It's okay. We're going to see examples where it's okay. God leaves room for our humanity if you feel like your faith is weak. It's different than unbelief. But in those moments, do we, are we being stored up enough to have faith for someone else? I know there's been seasons in my life where I single-handedly survived on the faith of my older brother. I know that without a doubt in my mind. Where I didn't feel, think, or believe things, truths really about myself, and he would proclaim them over me, having never stopped believing them, seeing them, or praying them over my life. I truly don't know if I would even be here preaching if it wasn't for those seasons of his faith pouring on to me, encouraging me daily. This is what we need to do in the process of checking our hearts. And what an opportunity the Israelite people must have had to do this, right? If they would have just kept singing that wicked awesome song about the horse and rider... They may have avoided a lot of the mistakes and paths and roads that they went down. Like, and they had so many opportunities to rejoice and reflect and remember how good God was. They just didn't do it. Instead, they tested and they quarreled with God. Uh, I don't know if any of you have done this. Um, it's just like the type of stuff that I like to do. Uh, has anyone flipped back to Psalm 95 this morning to see the original? Yeah, I love it, Nancy. It's my, duh, that's why we're friends. Um, so if you flipped back to Psalm 95, because that's what Hebrews is quoting, you may have noticed something and that it's not a word-for-word -word quote from Hebrews into the Greek. Okay? Actually, in Psalm 95, it originally says... Uh, as you did at Meribah and as you did at Massa. Now, those words do translate into and mean testing and quarreling. And they come from Exodus chapter 17. That's where God named the place where the people turned against God and Moses and said, give us water. And Moses struck the rock and God provided water. And then God was like, this place is now called Meribah and Massa because... Uh, you guys quarreled and tested me here, right? I'm shocked some of these places aren't called you suck. <laughs> like, and maybe I should look. Maybe in the original Hebrew, that's what it is. Um, but this, in this place, at this moment, they say, is God with us? Is God with us? Do you know what happened in chapter 16? He gave them manna and quail. So these people, cheeks packed like chipmunks, full of manna that just showed up, crumbs on their shirts, and they're like, is God even with us? This is insane. 
And honestly, this is the thing. I know this can sound crazy. I know this can, in some ways, sound almost unrelatable. And this is why we need to stop. This is why we need to stop. We need to pause. We need to understand that the writer of Hebrews wrote this in here, not just as a, hey, remember when, not just as filler, but because here is the humbling, honest truth in reality. This isn't an old, unrelatable story. This is a mirror and a magnifying glass on the human condition. This is the truth of who we really are, honestly, in our heart of hearts. I don't know if any song lyrics ever have spoken and resonated with me more than prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave this God I love. This is why we need to pray and work to take our hearts and seal it. Because this is what we are prone to do if we are not careful, if we do not guard our hearts, if we are not mindful of who God is, if we don't continually put our faith in him and move forward, we will slide backwards in unbelief. This is supposed to be humbling. This is supposed to be refreshing. In our language, this should come out as, hey, when you get that job you're praying for, you deserve, don't forget who God is. When you get that raise, when you get that house, when you get that vehicle, when you get that fill-in-the-blank, do not forget who your God is where you still have crumbs on your shirt. This is a genuine, tender reminder for these people that this is the human condition. This is why our passage of Scripture this morning ends the way that it does, and it repeats, once again, look at this, verses 14, 15, repeats that somber, heartfelt, sincere uh, message from the beginning. We've come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original convictions firmly to the very end, as, as has just been said. Remember, this is like saying, oh, if you would just listen. He's repeating it again. He starts and finishes this way. How much does he want them to listen and not do this? Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. Finishing out the verses this morning, 16 to 19. Who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they not all those Moses led out of Egypt? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies perished in the wilderness? And to whom did God swear they would never enter the rest if not those who disobeyed? So we see that they were not able to enter. Why? Because of their unbelief. A good start isn't good enough. That's I, so many of the commentaries said. It was like word for word. A good start isn't good enough. That is the reminder here. We need to be so cautious in the way we walk with the Lord, and we need to make sure that we guard our hearts. Proverbs 4, verse 23. From the wisest man to ever walk on the earth, and he says, above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. I read another quote this week, and it said this, and I love this. It says, at the heart of every issue is an issue with the heart. 
At the heart of every issue is an issue with the heart. This is what our author is trying to communicate. This is what he's trying to wake his readers up to realizing. So how do we guard our hearts from unbelief? Well, ultimately, the best source is the Word of God. We need to be in the Word of God. Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the Word of God. If you want more faith in Him, spend more time with Him. It is that simple. We need to know His Word. We need to know His Word so we do not go in reverse in our lack of faith. You see, the Israelite people, they had experienced this great exodus, escaped from Egypt, and now their unbelief led them to, at times, reject God, and it led them to sin. It was unbelief in God's goodness, God's word, who God is, who God says they were. It was unbelief in that that led them to sin, not sin to unbelief. Okay? Your unbelief will can rob you of blessings and lead you into sin. How many people do you think out there who don't believe or even know who they truly are in the eyes of God and that has led them down many dark roads? Unbelief in what God says and who he is will lead you going backwards. And that's what happened with the Israelites, right? They were turning backwards and they were saying, I want to forfeit all of these things and I would love to go back to Egypt because being a slave with, and it always kills me that one of the things the Old Testament quotes or shares is that they were complaining because they wanted leeks, onion, and garlic and slavery. It's like, man, if I could just be a slave with absolute dragon breath, that would be just the best. That is way better than this freedom stuff. Like, but that's the thing. Their unbelief had them looking back, right? Not moving forward in faith, had them looking back. So that's the reminder here for the original audience as well. For the original readers of Hebrews is this, that they had stepped away from the sacrificial system, from temple worship, into the freedom of what Jesus was, had called them out of after everything that he accomplished. And now the author of Hebrews is fearing that because they're starting to have unbelief in who God is and who Jesus is and all that he accomplished, they're looking backwards and thinking, I think I want to go back to temple worship worship. And some of us may have been experiencing that because it's the same reminder for us this morning. Maybe you have experienced a powerful exodus in a spiritual way, maybe even tangible in some senses because of what Jesus has done for you. But now it's creeping into your mind that perhaps you would like to go back to the very things that you wanted to escape from. We need to check our hearts not doubt Jesus so we can move forward in faith. And as we prepare to wrap up, I just want to say this. It can seem discouraging to try and figure out, how do I do this? How do I really check such a hard heart as mine? Well, the author of Hebrews was smart. He knew you might wonder this. That's why only 12 verses from now, he would write this. The word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrating to divide soul and spirit, joints and marrow, judging the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. 
What do we need in order to navigate this life and move forward in faith? It is the Word of God. What we need is God's pace notes. I didn't mention this at the start of our time this morning, but pace notes are the thing that the rally driver, that the co-driver is reading. The co-driver in the vehicle is reading what is called pace notes. Here's what else I discovered, that you don't get to do a trial run on most of the courses. The pace notes are given to you by the coordinators of the event. Why? Because they've been on this course way more than you. They know it way better. So they're going to tell you how to do this as safely and as accurately as possible. So you are provided with pace notes to make it on your journey successfully. And God has done the same. And men and women of Christ have done the same for us. They have walked this life. There is nothing new under the sun. It is in Scripture, and we can go to God's pace notes and know what to do. And we should try and build and desire to build that abiding faith where, oh, I just wish and pray that one day I could get rid of the I know it better in me so that I actually could just hear God's whisper and move that direction. Over the calamity and the chaos of this life, this is what we need to do. And the last thing I want to say as we prepare to wrap up and move into a time of worship is this. I want to do this and I want you to do this and here's why. Because there is no telling what God might have in store for you that is only 11 days away. That is only 11 days away and here's why I say that. Because when the time came when God started to lead his people away from Mount Sinai and towards the promised land, a time where Moses would say to his father-in-law in Numbers 10, we are going to the place that God is calling us to, that he's reserved for us. They were, he was prepared to embrace what God was calling him to. They were going to move into the promised land. When they left from Mount Sinai, it was only an 11-day journey to the promised land. 11 days that turned into 40 because of unbelief. You could be 11 days of just wild faith in Jesus from absolute breakthrough. I'm not saying that as an algorithm, okay? I just want to make something clear. You could be 100 days away from it. I don't know. But how encouraging it is to know that just by placing our faith in Jesus, we could do it. I don't know. Maybe you don't know. You could just be 11 days away from encountering and walking into something that maybe you felt you've walked around for 40 years. Move forward in your faith. As we wrap up this morning, we are going to move into a time of worship. And as we sing this song, I want us to declare faith. I've already felt it this morning as we worship. This is a room of faith right now, and I want to grow. I want you guys to sing this song and sing it over your lives. Sing it over your situations. Declare it over your children. Declare it over your jobs. Whatever you need to, use this song as an anthem and as a creed and a reminder to build your faith and your confidence in who God is. And if you're here this morning, and you want prayer, 
Peter and I are going to be here up at the front during the song. Please come forward. We would love to pray over you, pray with you, and encourage you as long as it is called today, and it is. We do not want to stop meeting and encouraging with one another in the hopes that you are not deceived by sin. So we are going to invite you to come. I want you guys to sing this song as an anthem. Make this a declaration for your day and your faith in Christ. And also, last invitation, if you're here this morning or watching online and you want to take that first step, today can be your exodus. If you're watching online, send us an email, office at duncanchurch.com. Someone will be in contact with you. But if you're here this morning, you're going to have the opportunity during worship. Come to the front. Come to Peter or myself and let us pray with you. Let us welcome you into the family. And we will do everything we can to ensure that you never walk alone. There's no telling what God might have in store for you that is only 11 days away. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to sing this song with all the confidence that we have. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning, and we thank you for who you are, Lord God. May you accept the singing and the declaring of this song as a sweet, sweet aroma. May we praise your name, and may you just whisper to our hearts from, from as the co-driver, Lord God, what we need to hear. Direct our paths, Lord God, but may they be paths that move forward in faith. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the podcast from Duncan Pentecostal Church, located here in Duncan, British Columbia, on beautiful Vancouver Island. At DPC, we believe in teaching the whole Bible to build whole believers who can impact the whole world. For more information about us, find us online at www.duncanchurch.com or find us on Facebook and YouTube by searching Duncan Pentecostal Church. Have a great day.